the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today, is the Equal Rights Amendment really a threat to equal rights? Was global cooling a serious prediction in the 70s? And why, for the love of everything that is good in this world, are millennials smartphone recording their marriage proposals? Welcome to the 180 Cast. Hello, welcome back to the 180 cast. I am your host, Georgie Borman, and this is the podcast dedicated to exploring how people change their minds, as well as seeking to bring some moral clarity out of cultural confusion. And that is generally what this half of the, well, this this mini breakdown session is about. This used to be part of one larger breakdown session, but the episodes were just getting too long. And I figured, why not break it up? And then we can have two episodes a week. It'll be way more fun, gives us a chance to catch up on any updates to top stories, and just have a little bit more breathing room to talk about the topics that need to be discussed and that are super interesting. Today, we have the Equal Rights Amendment on the table for the Woke of the Week because the Equal Rights Amendment is super, super duper woke. I mean, if you don't support the ERA, you're basically comatose. We're also going to take a message on the flip phone relating to some comments I made about the uh, Australian wildfires last Friday. And (laughs) in our Uncorking the Culture segment, we are going to talk about why. Why? Why are millennials using a smartphone case as an engagement ring box and recording their marriage proposals? I know. I know. Millennials are the worst. Anyway, before we get started, please, if you have not subscribed, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast catcher is your favorite. Assuming you are listening in your favorite podcast catcher, please hit the subscribe button and then you will not miss out whenever I upload, which is every Friday and every other Tuesday is when we upload episodes to the 180 cast. And every other week, of course, is an in-depth interview with somebody who has changed their mind. And the topics range from veganism to abortion to switching political parties to border security. I mean, we've really, we've really run the gambit here. And it's always interesting and always a good time. And you will always walk away thinking just a little bit deeper. And that is my goal with this podcast, to get you thinking. And I do hope that you come back and stick around for that. With that, let us go ahead and check the messages on the flip phone. I'd like to have an argument, please. I have a different interpretation. This message reads, after listening to episode 44, which was the last episode, which was a breakdown session, I can't wait to listen to episode 43. I know, backwards. Well, it it isn't backwards, because if you miss out on an episode, which happens all the time with podcasts, part of the reason I do the breakdown sessions is in case you missed it, 
you're really going to want to go back and listen to it after you've heard some of the sound bites and heard me talk about it a little bit. So not backwards at all. Not backwards at all. Uh, this person says, BTW, I'm pretty sure that when Australia had the fires in the early 70s, I was in school learning about global warming. Okay, she's talking about I did, he or she is talking about um, the segment I did on the Australian wildfires and talking about how it, it is being generally attributed to global warming and that the other more immediate causes of the wildfires, such as arson, such as a high fuel load and things like that, were kind of being brushed off to the side in favor of blaming global warming when really we need to sort of reverse the order and say, what are the immediate causes? And then we can talk about what are the secondary or tertiary exacerbating factors that may have contributed to a climate that's more conducive to wildfires like this one. Anyway, long and short of it, that's what we're talking about. And okay, so it continues. Yep, that's right. The coming ice age may be another reason these fires should not be attributed to global warming only. Very interesting thought. I have heard from many, many people who went to school in the 70s that they were taught about global cooling and that if they were taught at a young age, it was a may or may not have been a frightening experience for them to to think about the, the coming ice age. I did look into this a little while ago, and so I went and I brushed up to make sure that I had it right. But this issue with global cooling, this is a very popular talking point on the right that, oh, well, in the 70s, people were talking about global cooling, and that's what scientists thought, and they were completely discredited because now they're talking about global warming, and why should we listen to anything they have to say? I looked into this, and it's very interesting because something like 44 of the climate research papers that were uh, written, authored in the 70s were actually in support of the idea that carbon dioxide emissions were contributing to warming the climate, compared to seven papers, which were about uh, the possibility of global cooling due to aerosols being put into the atmosphere that um, absorbed heat or something along those lines. But of course, the media is is always looking at what is the most sensational thing that we can be talking about right now? What can we latch on to that is going to stir up people's emotions, possibly stir up people's fears more than global warming might? And that's global cooling. And so that's what the media latched on to. It got a ton of media attention, despite the fact that it was a minority, a distinctly minority opinion in the 70s. And it worked its way from mainstream media into curriculum, which says a lot, right? Because it says that the curriculum, at least at the time, was not so much based off of solid scientific research, you know, probably in like, we're talking elementary school, maybe it'd be different in high school, wasn't based so much on scientific research as teachers reading news articles, which is something to think about. I seriously doubt that it's changed very much from the 70s to 2020. I would be interesting to I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Were you in school in the 70s or the 80s and do you think 
that that has changed? Or are you younger and you're, you're thinking, hmm, that sounds familiar. My teacher brought in a Newsweek article just the other day that said blah, 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 and so-and-so, and I went and checked, and uh, it, it turns out that that's a, a minority opinion, and not a lot of people believe that. I think it just goes to show that the the picture that the media presents on any given issue you cannot trust that that is representing uh that 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 that's fairly representing all of the viewpoints involved that they pick and choose things to zoom in on and things to hype up and that can easily distort the public's perception of what is a threat and what is not a threat that being said, I do stand by the comments that I made last week regarding the mixing up the sort of order of causation with the Australian wildfires. Um, yeah. Yeah, this message got me thinking. And I think that this is going to lead to a more long-term conversation about the media's role in forming public opinion and how we always need to go back and check what the mainstream media is telling us against more authoritative sources, or at least just sort of check and look around and see what everybody else is saying, especially if you're getting your news mostly from one side of the aisle or another, if you're getting your news from MSNBC or CNN, or you're getting it from Fox News or One American News Network, those people obviously are going to have different narratives depending on what what suits their their agendas what suits their ideologies and there's nothing wrong with having agendas and ideologies but if we want to be well-rounded and informed citizens it does take a little bit of extra effort to not just look at what the right is saying and what the left is saying but even beyond that and behind that looking at what the actual academics are saying so like a good thing to do that I do when I'm writing all the time is if I'm reading an article and this one author or this one scientist is quoted, I'm going to go look up that specific scientist and see what have they written, what other people have they talked to, have they said something different somewhere else, what are their papers, do I have access to any of their papers, you know, what's in what's in their book, and so on and so forth, and that can really give you a much more enriched idea of what is going on on any particular topic. So let's not just look behind the headlines, man. Let's look, let's look beyond the, the name dropping in the articles too. Just a pro tip, having been a writer for a while now. Oh, interestingly though, I almost forgot to say that in my research, double checking uh, the global cooling hysteria in 1975, the United States National Academy of Sciences slash National Research Council report, which is a very long title, that particular report from 1975 with regard to climate science, their basic conclusion was, quote, we do not have a good quantitative quote, we do not have a good quantitative understanding of our climate machine and what determines its course. Without the fundamental understanding, it does not seem possible to predict climate. And now, of course, the the basic conclusion or the so-called consensus has changed and says, yes, now we have, we, we, we now understand how the climate works and, and our predictive models are going to work. And it would be interesting 
to see what exactly has changed, what sciences have developed since 1975 that leads to such confidence that we can uh, predict global warming or global cooling or, or anything for that matter with any degree of certainty. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into the woke of the week, which is the Equal Rights Amendment. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Mine too. Y'all about to get woke. Just recently, Virginia became the 38th state to supposedly ratify the Equal Rights Amendment because, especially in Trump's America, you know, where we are teetering on the edge of a handmaid's tale where women are just totally oppressed, we need to get woke and do something that is ostensibly totally redundant to existing constitutional and legal protections, but we need to do something to show how woke we are. And that is the Equal Rights Amendment, which reads, Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Now, that seems, seems pretty harmless, right? We're just saying that you cannot deny people equality under the law based off of their sex. What's wrong with that? Why can't we ratify an amendment like that, add that to our other amendments, and just say absolutely definitively, certainly, redundantly, you cannot discriminate on the basics of, basis of sex? What's wrong with that? Well, anytime you have courts involved, there's a lot that can go wrong with something like that as history has shown us. So there is a pretty good article by Inez Felcher at the International Women's Forum, who also writes for The Federalist. She said that the ERA could affect a range of controversial issues from drafting women into combat to single-sex bathrooms in public schools to equal pay or even government programs that support girls. So the draft is the biggest thing that people usually go to and you say, well, if the government can't discriminate on the basis of sex, then you can't, you're saying that essentially in no way can you make any distinction between men and women with regard to any particular law. You cannot, you cannot acknowledge that there is a difference to the point where you are modifying the laws slightly for one sex or another. And so the draft is a perfect example of that because we draft, um, only men are drafted, right? Until the age of 26, I think you're, you're eligible to be drafted. And when you're like 18, you're supposed to sign up to potentially be conscripted, hold on, I can say this word, conscripted into military service should that need arise. And women are not required to do that. Well, why is that? Because men and women are different. Women are generally generally the ones who are at home being the primary caretakers of the children. Women are not physically as strong as men. They are not as fast as men. Just physically in general, they cannot meet the same rigors as men. But in any case, a law like saying we're only going to draft men would be unconstitutional under the Equal Rights Amendment because it's so 
vague because it's so vague in a sense it's more strict it says equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the united states or by any state on account of sex and like i said anytime you have the courts involved you've got courts interpreting something that is that is vague and they anytime you have vagueness in the law you're going to have space to insert ideology and to insert political agendas and that is the fear with the equal rights amendment and it is not just a fear uh on the right from conservatives it is also a fear on the left because i just read an article from the washington post where the author was arguing that the equal rights amendment because it says on the basis of sex well that seems trans exclusionary and that doesn't cover um, discrimination on the basis of gender, on the on your gender identity, if you're transgender or if you're non-binary or something like that. Like there's concerns from coming from the left too, because this amendment is so vague. Of course, when it was drafted in the, I don't know when it was originally drafted. I think it was in the 1920s, if I remember correctly. When it was originally drafted, none of this gender ideology stuff had really developed at all so sex meant sex it means female and male and that's all you got so it would have been much more simple at that time but now that we have gender ideology increasingly in the public awareness and in the awareness of the courts and then building laws and interpretations of laws based off of that well now now we've got a problem and it's not just that though it's not just about the difference between sex and gender. It, it does, it could very well negatively affect women as in females. Because if there's equality of rights under the law and you're not allowed to discriminate at all on account of sex, then what about programs that are only for girls or only for women? What about WIC? What about women, infant, children, right? That is a program specifically for boosting the nutrition of women with infants and children, right? That Like that's a food stamp program specifically for them. The idea is that the government said, well, uh, this is sort of the basic building block of society and uh, women and infants need to be taken care of because, you know, these mothers are taking care of the next generation. They've got to take care of themselves. If they can't take care of themselves, they can't take care of their kids. And we need to make sure that they are supported, supported and that they have a safety net. That all goes out the window generally by what people expect to see from the courts with regard to the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, the Supreme Court is fairly conservative right now, but you don't you don't know for sure. You don't know for sure. And you could have three justices drop dead tomorrow and in in less than a year have a President Sanders or a President Elizabeth Warren nominate those justices, and it takes a long time for these things to work their way through the courts. So, this is this is very woke right? It's supposed to be, let's make sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, let everybody know and put it in the Constitution that you are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of sex. And fundamentally, on its most basic, vague level, everybody should agree with that. But on the other hand, if you're denying the reality 
that men and women are different, this is going to lead to some pretty tricky situations. For instance, um, like Inez writes in this article for the International Women's Forum, she says, some states have a version of the ERA in their state constitutions, which can give some indication of how federal courts would interpret a federal amendment. In 1998, a state court ruled that New Mexico's Medicaid program must cover abortion services because not doing so would violate the state's the state's ERA. A similar ruling under a state ERA was made in Connecticut. And I mean, it, it, it goes it goes beyond that, even beyond like covering abortion services because women deserve their reproductive freedoms. And if you deny them their reproductive freedoms, you're denying them equality under the law or something along those lines. It's not just tacking on progressive entitlements. I did an article a few years ago about disparate impact in housing policy. And the idea of disparate impact is you can judge whether or not a policy is discriminatory based off of the populations that it affects, not necessarily what is explicitly in the language of the regulation, but what its effect is. And so if you have a housing policy, for instance, that that negatively impacts the African-American community, right? Let's say it's like crowding them out of a particular zone or something because there's not enough low-income housing. Then that's a disparate impact on the, the, the black community. And therefore, as courts have ruled before in, in Texas, I believe, Texas lost, lost this case. But y- you can basically say, yeah, it's discriminatory because look at the impact it had. Well, disparate impact, I guarantee you, okay, I'm not a legal expert, but I am pretty sure that disparate impact is going to be applied to the Equal Rights Amendment too. And what is that going to give us at that point? Well, in housing policy, it gave us quotas, or at least it gave Texas quotas on how much low-income housing that they needed to build. And they needed to modify their policies to make sure that everything was as equal as possible. They had to go out of their way to make sure that different demographics were incorporated in a certain blend that the the courts were comfortable with. Well, when it comes to equal rights for men and women, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to eventually have sex quotas. You're going to have quotas, at least for larger companies, where it's somewhat feasible to enact something like that, and definitely, most certainly, for the federal government, which is the largest employer in the United States, you would have quotas saying you need to hire this many women, you need to hire this many men, and there might be some differences and tweaks based off of the local population and who lives there. But generally speaking, they're going to try and make those things as equal as possible because disparate impact. If you have a bunch of electrical engineers and 90% of them are men, but you have people graduating out of the local university where only 75% of them are men, well, you're going to have to do something about that, right? Because there must be some level of discrimination going on. So it seems harmless on the outside. Equality of rights under the law should not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. But when you put these things in the hands of the courts, you are as Inez said so eloquently in this article, you are taking those debates and those conversations out of the public square 
and out of the control of the voters. And you're turning that over to to judges who have lifelong appointments, who often run unopposed, who whose decisions it is very hard to overturn. And once something comes down from the Supreme Court, I mean, that's it. You're done. The conversation is over. Just like with gay marriage. Conversation was over. Obergefell, 2015, done. We're done for the whole United States. That conversation, policy-wise, not morality-wise, but policy-wise, that conversation is over because of the courts. So we need to be careful when looking at adding amendments or even adding new acts or bills that propose to protect people because often legislators don't understand the potential consequences of how the language they're writing can be interpreted. It's often very vague, and they foolishly turn those things over to regulators, and then the regulators get sued, and then that's how these things end up in court. And then you have this mess on your hands, and you're like, but wait, I didn't mean... I didn't mean for any of this to happen. Well, maybe you shouldn't have stuck your you shouldn't have you shouldn't have stuck your head where it didn't belong. Okay? And this is why conservatives are small government people and why we're hesitant to turn anything over to the government and to have the government have a final say on practically anything except the idea that we have rights that are endowed by our creator and that we have the right to life, we have the right to liberty, we have the right to bear arms, we have the right to freedom of speech, to peaceably assemble and petition the government for a redress of grievances. We have all of these rights, and those rights are not dependent on our sexes. But anything beyond that, we need to be able to look at that on more of a community level as much as possible and decide how we're going to handle those things and keep things local and keep things within the control of the people who are most directly affected by it and not turn these things over to a, a nine-person oligarchy that just hands down decisions and then there's nothing that you can do about them. So those are my thoughts on the Equal Rights Amendment. Hopefully that is helpful. And now I want to talk about, hmm, now I want to talk about something that I wrote about recently in this Uncorking the Culture segment. It's going to be legend. Wait for it. Skip the end. Daring. There is this hellish gizmo out there called the, the rock shock, which may give you just a tiny indication of what this is about. The rock shock is a phone case. It is not just any phone case. It is a phone case with a pop-up ring stand. And not only... Does this phone case have a pop-up ring stand? But it is crafted in such a way that your camera will line up perfectly with that wonderful, shiny gem that you are going to give your soon-to-be fiancé so that you can capture her expression when she sees it. Rock shock. Rock shock. Well, I had to write about this. And my article goes a bit beyond the idea that this is ridiculous and you definitely, definitely should not buy a phone case for your ring box so that you can shove a camera in your soon-to-be fiancé's face, which, you know, if you do this, she might not be your fiancé. She might say no. Definitely don't do that. But I wanted to talk about why 
why this is a thing and why it seems, from what I can tell based off of social media, why people are rebelling against this. Just so you know, this article hasn't been uh, published yet. It's in the hopper, which is what we like to say when articles are waiting to be published. But I'm going to talk about it anyway. And that is one of the perks of listening to the 180 cast, because you get to hear about things that I am writing about sometimes before they're even published. That's a perk. That's why you should stick around and subscribe to this podcast. Anyway, my point here is that not only is this this tacky, okay, but you, you can say that it's that the rock shock is obnoxious because putting a phone in somebody's face while they're being asked to make the biggest decision of their life is that's, that's just pretty obnoxious and inconsiderate. That's definitely true. But, but on the other hand, um, what has stopped us from shoving our phones into the middle of virtually every other delicate moment that is decent for public viewing? Are we videotape our kids like we record our kids all day long. We record just moments on the couch all the time. We record our anniversary dinners, birthday dinners, people opening presents emotionally. Like we we record we record everything. Okay, so the rock shock, the way I see it, is exactly what a very online millennial should want, right? Because I think that if, if such a very online millennial were like Black Mirror style able to download his, and let's say his very serious girlfriend, like download their, all of their data, all of their social media life into an artificial intelligence and then they ask that AI to like send them a few things to fit their lifestyle. I mean, the rock shock would be among the things that come in a cute little crate to sit on the doorstep along with maybe like a rustic bespoke lighting fixture and some cigars and maybe a bottle of rosé. I mean, this is exactly what we should expect. Everything social media wise has led up to this point this is peak this is peak gen y culture in my opinion peak gen y culture and the reason it is peak millennial is that it it directly serves the culturally established principle that hey if it isn't recorded if i don't see the minutes then it effectively didn't happen I mean, did you even jump off that cliff? Did you even go skydiving? Did you even give birth? I don't know for sure because I haven't seen the video evidence. And that's just that's just the way that we live now. You've got to record everything remotely interesting that is happening in your life. And not only can it can it not be this event, any particular experience, be adequately remembered and commemorated if you're not taking pictures or videotaping, but it didn't even achieve like its full impact on reality, like in the here and now, because the number of people who saw it wasn't maximized. You've, you've like diluted the potential power of your experience. Are you even living your best life if you cannot have at least a couple dozen people watching what you're doing at any given time. No, no, 
clearly you can't. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's the message that I'm getting from the culture and I'm a millennial. The horrible thing about the rock shock, really, is that it's not just about sticking your phone where it doesn't belong in sentimental, intimate moments that are supposed to be raw and real and just between you and the people there. It's, the rock shock is like, it's like a physical representation of social media in general. It's like right in the middle of everything. It's influencing how people speak and how they behave. It's making them self-conscious. Not just like self-conscious in a bad way, but just conscious of yourself in general and the way that you're moving and how is the lighting hitting you and are you posing right? And if somebody snaps a picture, is it going to look bad? And the rock shock is like, is making content production an end in itself. And I think that that's obvious because nothing says you're doing it for the gram. Hashtag do it for the gram. Nothing says you are doing it for the gram like a pop-up smartphone ring box. I mean, people have been taping and photographing engagements for a long, long time, but this is totally different because this isn't, I'm keeping this for posterity. Maybe I'm going to show this to some friends. It's, I am possibly not only shoving this right in the middle of this very important interaction, but possibly live streaming it to as many people as possible because... You know what? It's exciting. It's interesting. People want to see it. And if people want to see it, well, then you need to make that content for them. And if you're not making that content for them, are you even living your best life? No. No, you're not. And as a result, because it's content production, you're cheapening that interaction. And a lot of millennials online have been hating on the rock shock because they're like, no, this is obnoxious and very tacky and why would you do this? And I think it's because deep down we all understand that we don't really want our lives to be reality shows. And I mean, reality shows aren't even reality. They barely, they barely retain any sense of that word. But a lot of times that like that's how we're living our life is like it's a reality show. And There's a lot of great things about social media. I am so thankful for social media in the way that it lets me share moments that I have with with my family, with other family members who maybe have never even met my kids. They haven't been able to come across the country to meet them, but they can still share in that joy and see them grow and learn new words and learn how to walk and things like that. Like, Sharing those moments sometimes can actually be really important and really bless people who can't be there in your life all the time the way that maybe they want to. But at the same time, it's total overkill. And we all, deep down, we crave authenticity. We crave sincerity and intimacy. And like we just understand on a deeper level that When we sacrifice our privacy, we are sacrificing that intimacy and all of those other things to various degrees. Like I'm not saying that you shouldn't videotape or take pictures of things that are important that happen in your life. Pictures and video are amazing. But when videotaping or taking pictures crosses that line from I'm doing this for posterity so that I can remember this and like when I have Alzheimer's 
when I'm 75, I'll still be able to look back on these accurate representations of what happened. When that crosses that line to I'm creating content and I'm using, like leveraging this situation to get likes, even though I'm sure that you're sincere about proposing to your girlfriend, right? Or maybe it's a girl proposing to her boyfriend. But you're leveraging the situation to become more popular. That's when we have a problem. Like, do you want something as important as a marriage proposal to be tainted by the awareness that you are producing content for social media? Personally, not a fan. Not a fan. So those are my thoughts on the rock shock. That is all I have for you today. I do hope that your January is going swimmingly and that your week is going swimmingly. And that, as I have said before, you are not letting impeachment get you down (laughs) or anything else in the news cycle. Take a break from the news, okay? If you feel overwhelmed and it makes you sad, just take a break. The world will still be here when you come back. And if you do come back, please come back directly to this podcast, The 180Cast. And if you have comments about this episode or any of the other episodes, you can text or leave a voicemail at 323-999-1802 so that I can talk about your thoughts on this podcast. Do not forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And thank you in advance if you do. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. To In the be. middle of a struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. To In the be. middle of a struggle, executive producer Lord, Kevin McCullough, music by Ruthie Crump. In the middle of a struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.